0: The following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. My name is Corey Olson. This is session number five of our discussion of Inferno. Uh, before we get started tonight, I just wanted to uh, remind folks, uh, first of the uh, exciting announcement I made last week, we have officially uh, launched to the world our Sign- our new Signum Academy Clubs, extracurricular programs uh, for kids uh, age th- from third grade, about age eight, uh, all the way up to 18, all the way up to the uh, the end of high school. Um, We really wanted to make these available to folks because I know that a lot of people, a lot of families have been really suffering from uh, kids not having the same kind of access to fun extracurricular stuff. It's hard enough to do school online, which many are still doing, um, but uh, to not be able to do the sort of the fun extra stuff, uh, and of course, a lot of the... Uh, you know, <clears throat> intellectual enrichment uh, that came through those programs. A lot of that has been lacking for many people this year, and so we have opened up our Signum clubs. Um, and these are we've got a we've got a book discussion club. We've got creative writing workshops. We have uh, conversational uh, immersive conversational language uh, discussions uh, uh, in, uh, Spanish is the language we're starting with. Uh, we'll add more as we go. Uh, and then also, uh, the, uh, our translation clubs, uh, where folks are going to, uh, kids are going to start learning Anglo-Saxon, uh, which is, I mean, come on, that's pretty cool. So anyway, uh, lots of really fun things, uh, happening there just encourage people to check that out, tell friends and family about it, love to to kind of spread the word about this as we go. Um, uh, I think that this this program has uh, a lot of potential and is something that I think will really be a big help to a lot of families, so I'm really excited about it. So... um, uh that will that's that's the the big fun thing that's happening i wanted to remind folks also we've got of course a couple holiday things going on uh we have our annual holiday special our holiday gift certificate special for anytime audits if you want to give the gift of anytime auditing um it's a really wonderful geekdom gift uh, to folks who, you know, really love this stuff. Basically, you get access to the all of the course materials for any one of the courses in our catalog that's listed there. You can go search through our catalog and look and um, find almost all of our courses we've ever offered are, are uh, included in the Anytime On It program. So you can go in and, and order a gift certificate and give that gift certificate to... Uh, you know, to friend or family uh, for uh, holidays this year. So, that's uh, we're having a uh, so that there's a special price for the gift certificate, so um, you know, which is a discounted price from our normal anytime audit uh tuition uh price. So, don't forget that. And we have a couple new holiday designs in our uh signum store as well. Do check out our signum store. Uh, lots of really, really fun Christmas ideas there too, of course. Um, all right. That stuff said, let's get back to gluttony. Uh, which is, of course, a very timely sin (laughs) to be discussing uh, in uh, the immediate aftermath of Thanksgiving. So, uh, yes, (laughs) Carolyn says it was uh, uh, wise to save most of the gluttony discussion for after Thanksgiving. Yeah, I think uh, it'll um, it'll 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 hit us a little bit harder now, I think, (laughs) than it might have before. Um, But uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so you'll remember that where we ended up, we were in the, almost to the middle of Canto six. And, uh, the interesting thing that I was sort of tracing there was the fact that we were not given any hints. Well, okay. I can't say we weren't giving any hints, but we were not told what the actual sin was, uh, in that circle. It's the third circle of hell. So we've had limbo, right? We've had, uh, uh, uh the, 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 the circle of the lustful, um with the with the lovers and we talked a lot about this about the courtly love thing last time and then we uh got into the next one with all the mud and the rain and the hail and the demon cerberus who's not a dog but kind of might remind you of a dog um and explain at least why you know virgil and others characterized cerberus as a dog why cerberus was uh uh traditionally understood to be a dog and we're kind of seeing the like horrible demonic truth behind uh the demon dog three headed dog Cerberus. Um but um anyway, so we've um uh we've seen those things, right? But it wasn't until after that that it was finally revealed that the sin actually being punished in that circle uh, was gluttony. Now, one of the things that I really want to be thinking about today, and we've talked about it some last time, we talked about it especially with regard to the lustful, of course, um, was the connection between sin and punishment. And I want to be thinking about that a little bit more tonight. Um, there's a I haven't used this word yet. Some of you might have been surprised that I haven't used this word yet. It's a very famous Dante studies word, uh, which is contrapasso, contrapasso, which speaks about the relationship between the sin and the punishment. Um, There's a reason that I haven't used that term. And that's I'm I'm a I'm not a fan of the majority of the discussions of the contrapasso that I have ever heard. In fact, uh, sorry, contrapasso. Yeah, I can spell that. Jocelyn. Good question. Uh, C-O-N-T-R-A-P-A-S-S-O. It's an Italian word, of course, Um, as are most things in Dante studies, very understandably. Um, So the contrapasso, I'm, I'm not a fan of the contrapasso. Uh, And mostly I find that very many discussions of the contrapasso, um, uh, I either disagree with wholly or find them very confused or confusing at the very least. Um. The thing that bothers me most about the discussions of the contrapasso is that sometimes people will talk as if the contrapasso means that a sin uh, is being It's sort of most neutrally described by saying the sin is punished in like an appropriate way, like a way that is suitable to that sin, which, in my opinion, says very little. Like okay, but suitable in what way? Like what exactly does that mean? That that doesn't that doesn't really tell me much at all, right? So, but then sometimes people will talk about the contrapasso as um, it means that the sin is met by its opposite. Which is flatly untrue and people will lump together what happens in Inferno and what happens in Purgatorio and I'm like, holy cow, it's completely different. Like it's like you've got to have a completely tin ear not to hear the difference, not to see the difference between what happens in hell and what happens in Purgatory. And the and people just kind of lump them together and call it all the contrapasso. So sometimes they say it's the opposite. Sometimes they say it's the same. Sometimes they'll say both at once. They'll be like, contrapasso means that a sin is punished by something which is very similar to it or which is the opposite to it. And I'm like, which one is it? It can't be both. And, and are you saying there's no system or are you saying you just don't understand the system? So like I said, I get, I tend to get annoyed when people start talking about the contrapasso. So I've been kind of avoiding that. I'm not going to use that term a whole lot. Um, I'm not saying that everybody misuses it, but it's just in my experience, uh, you know, which is not profound with Dante, but, um, in my, I just, I have found that a deeply unhelpful term. Um, it's almost like, and I am, um, I, I, well, okay, I'll say it anyway at the risk of sounding uncharitable, which I don't want to be uncharitable, but it's almost like there are many people who feel by using an Italian term, they no longer have to, like, think about what it means. Like, if they have an Italian term to label it, then, like, it's OK if we're just using that, throwing around that term in completely vague, specific, and indeed often contradictory ways. But it's Italian. So, I mean, it's just I, I think that's probably uncharitable and it's probably not true of many people. But um, uh, but I I. Yeah, Tomas, exactly. It it literally means counterstep, um, which is why, and I think it's, um, I think it's actively misleading in Inferno in particular. Um, I'm willing to talk about a counterstep, Tomas, in that way, a contrapasso in that way, um, in Purgatorio. There, I think there's some sense to it, but not in Inferno. Um, I, I, so, I've not been talking about that because I wanted to. I I, I didn't want to. I didn't. I I didn't want. I don't. I don't want, want to go there. I don't want to encourage people to be thinking in those terms. Instead, what I do want to do is I want to be kind of you know. Doing what I do, you know, approach the text sort of from scratch and say, What what do we see? What does it show us? What can we learn? So forget you know, the Italian terms, which may or may not be meaningful to you or to the person who's talking about them. And instead, just let's just look at the text and what it says and look at the patterns that we can see. We started with one last time, which was uh, the circle of the lustful in which we had the gusting winds swirling them around all the time. Right now, what do we see? And this is why I'm talking about this here in connection with gluttony, uh, because It seems to me, as I've said, so conspicuous, that he kind of withholds the sin for a really long time, right? It's not until, what is it, line 50? I mean, it's a third of the way through the canto um, that we learn uh, what it is. And I can't help but feel that there's a certain... um, uh, uh, That there's a certain... Deliberate. Uh, I'm not sure how to characterize it. It's not it's not a test exactly, but Dante is is almost prompting. It's like uh, uh, he wants us to guess. Right. Like we're supposed to figure it out. Uh, Almost. I'm not sure that he's like exactly manipulating us in that way. I'm not I'm not it's I I, again I don't want to I don't want to be too proactive in what I'm asserting about Dante's intentions there. But um, but it certainly sets us up to try to to kind of understand. So it seems to me a really logical place to talk about this, right? Where we're supposed to, in some sense, right? The poem seems to be inviting us by withholding the description for so long, uh, or the, though, like the identification, I should say, it doesn't withhold description. That's exactly what it does give us. Um, um instead of just giving the label at the beginning, Uh, And then in that way, inviting us to be kind of more passive in our reception of it by withholding it, he makes us curious, right? He makes us wonder Um, and therefore to be thinking about the cause and effect, right? About the relationship between um, what is happening here and the, the sin. We only learn about the sin after we have been given reason to see why it's fitting so that it should, I think, if we're good readers, I'm hoping, I think, it should come across. Like, what the effect should be. When he finally says the word gluttony there in, uh, you know, about line, what, 52 or something like that, then um, our reaction should be, oh, right, that makes sense. Now, it, it fits, right? Now I see what how it fits. Even if we didn't figure it out before, we don't have to guess it in advance necessarily, but it should it should fit right so so how does it fit what have we seen let's recall can we recall give me observations what did we in the first 50 lines what are some of the things we were told again we were told it's raining constantly right so there's water all over the place what else what were the other important things uh, that happened in those first 50 lines, those those descriptions. Anyone remember? I know, it was like a week ago, right? Uh, and uh, there's been so much turkey between now and then, <laughs> but still. Um, uh, okay, yeah, rain and mud. Yeah, yeah, uh, lots of mud uh cold yeah the Stephen the shades were sort of not very recognizable right um hail right not not just rain but hail jocelyn that's that's right that's right, and it was dirty, right the hail itself and the and the rain itself is dirty uh, so it's not just that it's making mud when it hits the ground, right um and stink right there was smell it every it all it, it it all reeked, the rain reeks the the ground the snow that comes down reeks it's all horrible. Um, and uh, and then there's David, yeah, that really important point, um, throwing the mud to Cerberus, who eats it. And if there is anything, I think, that should provide the clearest clue, like if we are going to guess what the sin is, and we're good readers of Dante, which means we should also be good readers of Virgil. I'm sorry, but it really is kind of like something Dante would have assumed. Right? Um, So I know none of us are particularly good readers of Dante in this way, but nevertheless, um, I told you the one important detail, right? That that moment of uh, wadding up the mud as Virgil does, right? And throwing it into the mouth of Cerberus who eats it and then falls asleep is a recapitulation. One of the uh, very clear recapitulations of the of, of scenes from uh, from Aeneid six, the descent into the underworld, Aeneas's descent into the underworld. Um, but the key, right um, uh, the key is the difference, right That's where I think the really important clue lies. Um, in the Aeneid, Cerberus is put to sleep and thus fails in his job as guard dog and enables them to pass. Um, this is a trick that Sybil is able to play on him. Why? Because he's gluttonous, right? Which is as much as to say he's a dog, right? Uh, this is why dogs are notoriously easy to poison, right? You just give them something in anything vaguely appetizing uh, and they'll eat it right up, right? I mean, that's mostly how dogs very often are. And that is a... Um, uh, that's a kind of a symbol, right? That's that's a kind of a that 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 image of throwing the cake to service which is it's a cake when in in the Aeneid right the Sybil uh, throws him a drugged cake uh which he eats and then falls asleep um he Cerberus that is in the Aeneid is ultimately sort of betrayed by his gluttony um and uh, <laughs> yeah I I hear that Jocelyn says um you know I have to say my dog will eat dirt if I if I give it to him I can imagine it I can imagine it um but um yeah anyway so yeah and Arthur I know that he's a worm here I'm talking about the I'm, I'm still talking about the the Aeneid right in the Aeneid he's definitely a dog uh and he is thrown not dirt but a cake and he go out and easily eats it and then is, and then falls asleep right afterwards so first that scene is recalled to us right um and that's the the only thing there's nothing else there is nothing else that explicitly recalls eating right I mean there's no connection explicitly to gluttony at any point in the first 52 lines apart from Cerberus, right? And again, less even what we see here than in the Aeneid, right? But remembering that passage from the Aeneid and the gluttonous eating of the cake by Cerberus, um, we then see that moment recapitulated, but it's different, right? He's not a dog anymore, and he's not even exact—I mean, he is compared to a worm, Arthur, called a worm— but uh but he's a demon right i mean he's 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 a little bit dog like right he sounds like a dog and he's got the three throats um and he uh uh and he is um uh so he's dog like and he's worm like but he's a demon right um and yet once again he eats greedily what is thrown to him and falls asleep again so the act of gluttony is recapitulated but this new time the act of gluttony is even more base and sort of appalling i mean it's it's mud and it's just any old mud right i mean the mud is hideous here like the mud is foul reeking filth here it's just been described how horrible and bad smelling it is right and it's that stuff that he virgil wads up and chucks into the mouth of Cerberus, which he, as soon as he gets it, he greedily eats it. um, Without any regard for what it actually is, like anything that gets chucked in his mouth, he will happily eat, right? So we see the gluttony of Cerberus, the original Cerberus, Virgil's uh, The Aeneid Cerberus, right? It's it's hard talking about Virgil, the writer of the poem, and Virgil, the character in the poem. The Aeneid Cerberus his gluttony, which is a perfectly understandable kind of gluttony, right? Not only is it totally, under, like, very true to how, in fact, dogs act, right? Throw a dog something tasty and they'll snap it right up, even if it's laced with drugs. Um, that's, of course, how I medicate my own dog, right? So, absolutely. Um, but um, uh, we, we, we get that repeated but it's not just repeated right it's amplified and the element of it that it's no longer understandable it's no longer a dog acting like a dog it's a demon right and it's no longer a cake it's no longer something appetizing it's just mud um and but that mud itself sort of sates him and 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 uh neutralizes him right um the element that remains, right? He's no longer a dog acting like a dog. He's no longer eating a cake. The one element that connects the two, apart from the name, uh, which is the thing that makes you connect the two in the first place, right? Uh, but the the one thing that connects the two of them is the mere desire to eat, right? The mere, uh, 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 you know, frantic consumption of whatever is chucked in its mouth. Um, and so that does help to... Um, give, um, uh, um, that does help to give, to sort of isolate it in a sense, right? Isolate the sin. Um, what is going, so we do have, it is, for me, it's primarily Cerberus or at least it's first and foremost Cerberus and the Cerberus incident that when Chaco says, the damning sin of gluttony makes me say, "Oh, right, okay, that makes sense, right? It makes sense how um uh Cerberus has been made into a kind of symbol of this sin in the middle of it. he's like the the figurehead almost for this particular kind of sin. He's almost like a kind of extreme of this uh particular sin um, and therefore helps us uh to understand. The people. Right. And to kind of contextualize the people and what's going on, um, what's going on with them. Um, but, uh, yeah, David, you're right. The sinners are also compared with dogs, um, uh, which makes the typical gluttony of dogs seem quite apt. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Jameson, see, I agree with you. This is an interesting little footnote that we should make along the way here. Right. Who is the the kind of paradigm of gluttony in the circle of gluttony? It's the demon. Who is? Remember, he is the act of punishment. He's clawing at the 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 uh, sinners, right? The shades. Um, he is tormenting the shade. He is the agent of torment for these shades, right? But he himself is guilty of this same sin. He himself is also. In torment, I mean he's in that circle also he's there's nobody raking his back with claws um but um but you know there's more than one way to and punish the gluttonous, I suppose, but he's still here right he's still and he, and again that act of him consuming the horrible stinking mud, and I hear you karita I, I my dog too uh you know karita says you know I say the mud stinks um but uh i she says i immediately think of how desperately my dog wants to get into the litter pan for my cats yes yes um i know it, it is um I'm not saying that's undog like uh to quite enjoy st- <laughs> even eating uh seeking out and eating horribly foul fetid stinking things um uh Carita, it makes me think of the story of rassby Woof and the fairy wog dog uh in watership down, but it also makes me think of my own dog too um uh but anyway um Yes. So I w- what we do see and James and I that this is where I definitely agree with you and this is the pattern that that I think we're seeing already between the second circle and the third circle um is this continuous recapitulation of the sin, right? Um those who surrendered their reason to their passion and allowed their passions to uh you know just followed their passions without you know, pulling back on the reins uh, with their reason like they're supposed to do. They just let themselves follow their passions are now tumbled about by this wind and they have no control uh, over, you know, their bodies and where they go. Um, the, the gluttonous, right? Well, certainly Cerberus as representative of, as the, the kind of chieftain of gluttony here, um, his own eating of the muck, uh, is um seems to recapitulate the same thing and the the fact that it is muck and this gets me then back to okay why the rain why the rain why the mud why the uh why the stink like why all this stuff um you know why is it that we get this exact um uh this exact atmosphere right um and um the Once we kind of make this, once we're kind of given this connection, and especially with the way that the muck, again, the 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 biggest clue I think that Dante gives us uh, for sort of parsing this on a on a moral allegory level, um, is the use of the mud itself in place of the cake. Um, He's juxtaposed there the uh, a desirable. Food stuff, maybe it was only desirable for dogs, maybe it was like you know the milk bone of the underworld that uh, she threw to the dog, uh, but it sounds like it was probably it sounded like a like a, the kind of cake that would have been offered during an offering uh, you know a, a a a ritual offering to the gods um, in Rome um, uh, or like one of the cakes. That was, you know, sort of set before the sacred chickens or something like that. You know, um, anyway, it's just it's a it's it's a cake, and I know it's not like a you know a layer cake with candles on top, but still a, a desirable food stuff, right? So you've got on the one hand the tasty cake, which is given to uh, uh, Cerberus in the Aeneid, and then you've got the horrible, vile, stinking muck in which the sinners are almost immersed right, and which is continually rising as the rain falls in this steady stream, Um, those two things are juxtaposed by that act of throwing uh, to the Cerberus demon. Um, So the food object, right, a desirable food object, the kind of food object that might tempt one to gluttony. I can personally imagine several uh, food objects from my recent experience that might tempt one to gluttony. Um, oh boy, this is a super awkward class to teach the week after Thanksgiving. It really is. Um, uh, I guess really apt. But, um, but that, I think, is supposed to be the kind of challenge here, right? Um, at the end of the day, those who are here for the damning sin of gluttony um are people who have chosen, you know, base things over higher things. Like really like you prioritized food. And I can't help but think this is just a personal association. I'm not saying necessarily that Dante is intending us to, to go this direction, but it almost um once the discu- once the sin of Uh, gluttony is revealed, I can't help but think of, um, uh, this whole associate everything that's described here with like the actual digestive process itself, the horrible, stinking, mucky fluids and everything. Um, it's like they're kind of locked into the, 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 the midst of that, uh, Whole process like this is this, this was to you the most important thing, right? You subjected everything else in life, you subjected everything else to this, right? You said that you know your food was like more important to you, it was more important than charity, it was more important than you know, you uh, you prioritized you know the pleasures of the table uh, over uh, you know, most everything else. Okay, we're just going to kind of lock you in the midst of that. You know, at the end, it's just like... It's, gluttony is one of the sins of the flesh, and in a way, it's one of the most fleshly of all of the sins, of, of all three of the sins of the flesh. Remember, that's uh, that's gluttony, lust, and sloth um, uh, are the three. Um, yeah, Carrie says, so now you are the large intestine. Exactly, exactly. Now you are the large intestine. Um... um yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's and yeah, Michael, I agree that smell seems especially significant. All five senses are assaulted, but the inescapable smell is so connected to the ideas of taste and appetite. Yeah, Michael, and I can't help but feel that I remember they're like face down in the mud, right? So um it's almost like their faces are being pushed into this, right? Like this it's all about yeah, yeah, it's it's uh um and again is that a reversal like you you could consider it a kind of reversal right like you partook of you know delicacies in life and now instead you're surrounded by foulness and filth you could see that as a kind of reversal right but in the i don't spiritually i don't think that it is i don't think that that's the point here really um they are like the lustful they well to quote the new testament they have their reward right they get what they chose what the lovers chose was passion right they chose passion over reason and as a result they have it that's one of the reasons that i think it's so poignant that Paola and francesco are 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 together right I mean you'd think that like the ultimate punishment for those lovers would be eternal separation, right? I mean and one could be tempted indeed as I said last time many have been tempted to see the end of Paolo and Francesca almost as a kind of happily ever after story, right? There they but at least they have each other in hell, right? They they um uh, you know, death can't, even death can't conquer love. So there we go. It's tearful, isn't it? It's not tearful, right? They are not happy, despite the fact that they're still in each other's arms, right? They have, in a sense, what they chose. Now they spend the rest of eternity understanding what it is that they chose, right? And what they've given up uh, in order to get it. And the same, I think, is true here, Um uh so I mean again is it a kind of reversal in some ways but uh, but to me that doesn't seem to be the real uh the real uh the real essence of it um bruce they are like pigs wallowing in the mud uh yes yes um yeah yeah um that's an interesting way of thinking about it, Stephen. Um, in life, even gluttony was somewhat blessed by the tastes and odors and things that God had intended for foods to have. In hell, the sin has been sort of purified by being stripped of the godly stuff it was blessed with in life. Yes, yes, Stephen, exactly. The, I mean, all of those sins, and in many ways, in I think this is safe to say, Sorry, i'm'm I'm, I'm like, Mike, I'm what would Aquinas say? But I think it's safe to say that especially the sins of the flesh are they are especially what's ro- the number one thing that's wrong about the sin of the sins of the flesh is that they are exploitations of blessings. They are good things. like there's nothing bad, intrinsically bad about eating food, about resting. Or about having sex. None of those things is evil. And everybody, all the medieval moralists, are quite clear on that fact. Even the sex part. Um, Those things are... And God gave them to be pleasures. Like, as Stephen, as you say, he blessed all of those things, right? The sin lies in the unrestrained exploitation of them, right? To choose to prioritize the pleasure derived from these the pleasure which God has attached to all of these things, right? I mean, he made food tasty, he made sex pleasurable, he made rest a good thing, right? All of these things are goods. They're they're they're, they're designed to be. Again, all the medieval moralists agree these things okay, most of them agree. They're always crazy folks, but most of the medieval moralists agree that uh, that God designed these things for our blessing. Right. But when you take them and you misuse them, um, when you enthrone them in the central place and you say, this is this is what I'm all about. Right. Um, I'm going to I'm going to make my life about, you know, the pursuit of these different pleasures at the expense of the other things that I'm supposed to be doing. Um, That's where. That's the danger. That's where the sins of the flesh come in. So I like that reading, Stephen, that that idea of a kind of a purification, right, that they this is what they have brought them. This is what they were choosing. Right. It's it's like, um, uh, you know, now they confront directly, uh, you know, without without disguise, without veil, without the um, the 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 kind of. um, uh trappings that enable self deception right into thinking you're not doing anything wrong um yeah Marilyn exactly there is a kind of there is a kind of distillation uh to it yes yes um absolutely i agree i agree um so that that seems to me uh what i think so that that's my understanding of why we're seeing what we're seeing. Uh, with the gluttonous here. Um, and I, again, I really like how Dante kind of teases that, right? How, how he kind of teases that out uh, and then only at, at the end reveal, well, not the end, but at the end of that whole intro, like descriptive sequence um, he tells us what it is. Now, about the dude, Chaco, right? The conversation that they have. Um, You'll notice what Chaco and Dante talk about. Um, Chaco is the first of Dante's contemporaries that he meets, right? Sort of contemporaries. Chaco says, like, we overlapped, right? Chaco is a previous generation, but Dante was alive when he was alive. They're both Florentines. They both share the same kind of political climate. Um, Okay, okay. And they talk about they talk about uh, 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 in, in, exclusively about Florentine politics, um, and they've both been kind of done wrong by Florentine politics. What's super interesting to me is that they don't talk at all about gluttony. <laughs> gluttony is the one subject that never comes up. Um, one of my, uh, um, one of my favorite notes in all of Alan Mandelbaum's uh translation, you know, in all of all of his notes is the one from this passage, where he talks about Chaco and he says, It is possible that Chaco was associated and it was famous in his life for his gluttony. But it is certain that after this appearance he is certainly famous for his gluttony. Um that is uh, you know, Mandelbaum is kind of um uh Gently uh, and amusingly, pointing to the fact that, like we, there seems to be no external justification that we know of. I mean, there are no contemporary records being like that, Chaco. What a pig he was, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing. All we know from his conversation, and like primarily what we know from history, is is his like the political stuff, right? What his political position was, um, and that um uh yeah yeah that i think is important that is important and it's especially important i i feel strengthened in my conviction that it's important by the cues that dante has given us earlier on in his allegory about in his in his work about the like multiple layers of allegory right um That is to say, of course, we should pay attention to Chaco's political stuff. Right. Confession. I'm not particularly going to. <laughs> but anyway, we we totally should. Like especially if we were Dante's original audience and I think he does really care. Dante really cares about Florence and certainly like his number one audience of people that he wants to read this are like the good people of Florence. And so there's like lots of totally relevant and I'm sure super important and monumentally edifying lessons that he had, uh, messages that he had for the good people of Florence and how they could best steer their way as a city-state in the immediate future and how they might possibly atone for some of the obvious missteps that they as a city had taken, as, for instance, exiling Dante. But um, I'm less interested in that, as I've said. But 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 here's the thing, right? Right. It's. It would be tempting to be like, okay, so when we're looking at the conversation between Chaco and Dante, forget gluttony, right? Because he's obviously not interested in gluttony. Um, and so, therefore, why should we even be thinking about it? Well, there's an answer to that question, though. There's a reason we should be thinking about it in this text. And that reason is because we've already been prompted to look at things on multiple levels. Um and so, yes, the mere fact that their primary focus is on the actual political situation doesn't mean that we should not also be looking at this uh, as some kind of a, uh, with some kind of a, a sort of a moral um, moral overlay. Um, but um yeah, yeah, um, exactly, Stephen. Dante clearly placed this guy here for a reason. Had he simply wanted to have a political conversation and to have Chaco utter the prophecies that he utters, political prophecies that he utters. Yeah. He could have had that anywhere. He could have met him in limbo, right? He could have met him anywhere. He could have put him in purgatory. He could have, you know, but he put him not just in hell. He put him here in the circle of the gluttonous. Um, And I think that there's, well, I think there's first and foremost political meaning to that. Um, I don't think that the point he's trying that I don't think this is merely a kind of a smear campaign against Jaco's memory right um that he's uh uh just being like oh and by the way boy could this guy eat right this guy stuffed his face throughout his whole life am I right right I don't think that's the contact the, the subtext here uh from Dante um I mean, is that true? Is that not true? I don't even know. Uh, we have no way of knowing. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't, though. Um, maybe, in fact, the reason that he's here is for gluttony on a kind of a deeper sort of level. Um, again, I and here, I can't tell you um, nearly as much as somebody who is better at the contemporary Florentine political stuff, but my impulse here... Um, what my what my gut tells me which is a rather conspicuous way to speak in this particular canto but what my gut tells me uh is that if we were to look at the both the the combination of what is known about the political career of this dude and combine that with what he says uh politically um the things that he actually utters to Dante um I think if we were to combine those two things together and kind of overlay that with a concept of the sin of gluttony, I think that we would see a pattern. I think that he is trying to uh, characterize the per- the particular, so the sort of the larger failings of this guy as a person, his political, the, the failings with which his political uh, perspectives are all tied up. Um, he would... Uh, those things are sort of associated, I think, that he would uh, associate them. He wants to. I mean, he is associating them with gluttony. Um, Carolyn, yes, he's a real person. He is a real person. He's a real historical figure, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Carolyn, that's a wonderful question, and I I do not know the answer to that question. Uh, her question is, uh, why is gluttony a level down? From lust. Um, Is it because adultery is easier to fall into? Yeah, so... First of all... I am not 100% sure that there is an absolute correlation. Like that it's... uh, You know, if we were to... If we were to graph... um, You know... um, Let's see, if we were to graph... Circles of hell along the X axis and like seriousness of sin and severity of punishment on the Y axis, right? If that would be linear or if it would be rising in any, uh, form exactly like is, is I, am not, I'm not confident that that's true. Um, I mean, the ninth circle of hell is very bad. Um, and just judging on that a lot. And there are other places where we are given the uh, sense, and we'll see them as we go. There are places where, like, you know, we get these kind of warnings that, like, and what comes next? It gets worse, folks, right? I mean, we'll get kind of messages like that, which do suggest, Carolyn, that there is a kind of increasing severity. Of course, the placement of limbo in the first circle, which is obviously hands down the most mild, right? Also suggests that kind of trend. Um, But I'm not sure... I'm certainly not sure it's a linear trend in any case. Um, There are many places... Where I'm like, well, I'd rather be there than the one above it for sure, <laughs> you know. I mean, and it's just it's so it's it's neither clear to me that Dante is is intending for us to see this as a as a rapidly increasing severity of punishment, nor is it obvious to me that he is necessarily saying that each sin is worse than the other. These these sins are in rank order, right, getting more and more severe uh, and more and more horrible as we go down. Um, it. It might be. It could be. It could be that. But I'm not. As I say, I'm not convinced. At least I'm not convinced that it's linear in that way. Um, uh, yeah, good, David. I agree. The description of the mo- the non-committal outside of hell proper seems much harsher than the upper circles. Yes, I agree. I mean, I I, I mean, okay. As he says. Uh, If other pains are more, none's more disgusting. Okay, so the punishment of the gluttonous is more disgusting than the the, the non-committal or the cowardly outside of hell. Um, But I'm not sure it's worse. Um, Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Here's the one thing I would say. The one thing I would say is that Although it is not clear to me that Dante is ranking things in a clear kind of stepwise order, or actually, I guess the steps should be going the other way, shouldn't they? Uh, I'm not sure that he's ranking them in a clearly linear or stepwise order, but I do think what he is clearly doing is categorizing, right? He is um, identifying and delineating things, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the order of presentation or even the order of structure, uh, you know, suggests that kind of linear progression. Um, but there is segregation, there is identification, like we're, we're separating things out, right, and taking a clear look. Um, hell is not merely this big giant melting pot of sin. It's not. Right? It's not just like, and there are the damned all in hell. Um, no, the, everybody gets their different place, right? And each sin is identified. And to play back on the subtitle of my slide, which is technically slide zero for tonight's class because we talked about it last week, um, the revelation of each sin, right? And that seems to me especially important for the sake of. Well, you think about this. For whose benefit? For whose benefit are these sins being revealed? I mean, like, through the structure of hell itself, right? Through the benefit to the for the benefit of the sinners? I mean, there's almost a, a sense in which that's true, as I've been talking about, right? Like, you know, Paola and Francesca have eternity to contemplate um, what has happened now that they have essentially, in one sense of understanding, it gotten their heart's desire, right? And, um, you know, so we could say, like, it's for their instruction, but it's certainly not for their benefit. I mean, they don't profit from this instruction in any way. They're not being corrected at all. Um, and that's true not only, like, because we know there's, like, there's no— this is a dead-end street, right? There's, they're, they're not going to be getting—they're not being taught lessons. They're not learning stuff. Right? They have no hope. Um, but but um, they and and also, yeah, okay, sorry, so so they, they, not only do they have no hope, but sorry, I lost my turn of thought there for a second. but also, they don't even really seem to learn the lesson. Like, does Chanko strike you as somebody who's really like understood now? You know, he, now he sees, he sees his life much more clearly and understands about the gluttony. No, he does not give that impression at all, right? Neither do Paolo and Francesca. They still speak like courtly lovers um, and speak with some satisfaction of the husband slash brother who killed the two of them being punished further down in hell than they are, right? You know, somewhere else down in hell. But... um but they they have they repented you know do they now regret it that doesn't sound like it right they they're they continuing to tumble around um so anyway uh yes it was um yeah steven it is ordered by a divine orderer right it is you know we've got the high artificer uh who has made hell and who has sorted these things out um But, of course, there's a sense in which it's not that Dante says this exactly, but there is somebody who learns the lessons that are being taught. If hell is organized in this way in order to teach a lesson, who is the only audience of that lesson? It's not the sinners. Again, they're not profiting from it. It's Dante, yeah. He's the one who's being given the tour, so that he can see and understand these, and us, of course, through him. Right? It's not only for his. uh, It's not uh, this adventure isn't organized for his sole benefit, Um, but uh, um, but he's the instrument, right? This is the this is um, this is his destiny and in a sense it's almost like this is saying way too much it's 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 going it's going way too far to spell it out in these terms but it's almost like it's the destiny of hell itself to be seen by dante um, i guess i don't it's it's not exactly like that but there's but do you see what i mean there's like a an element of that there's a it it tastes just a little bit like that um Yeah, Michael says uh, Minus' role. Is Minus' role um, to um, uh, direct people to the level uh, or to judge them, especially if someone could be in multiple levels at once? Michael, I think Judge, first of all, he's a famous judge um, from, from, from you know mythological history. Um, so him employing some actual judgment would seem to be appropriate. Also, the fact, Michael, that the sinners are depicted as confessing their sins to... Him. They don't, he don't just come up... They don't just need to come up with a label already, and he's just, like, dispatching them to wherever they're labeled, right? They first confess their sins to him, and then on hearing their sins, he's like, okay, yeah, you, uh, Chaco, gluttony for you. Um, because presumably, yes, they would have been guilty of... Uh, um, uh, Multiple, many of them would have been guilty of multiple sins. Um, yeah, and, and then there's the tail action, Jocelyn. Exactly. That's the that's the mechanism. But he's not he's not only a mechanism, right? That's the outward sign of his judgment, but he's clearly doing the judgment. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and Gerald, you're right. Sorry, I'd missed this comment before, but you're right that. Um, uh, all the punishments are equally bad in the sense that they're primar- permanently separated from God. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's um, there is certainly a sense in which every circle—it's like six of one, half a dozen of another, right? Like, what does it really matter uh, what circle of hell you end up in? Um, you are uh, the point is you are permanently locked away without hope uh, of redemption. So, yeah, that's kind of the the big—that's uh, sort of the headline there. Yeah, and Gerald. Well, Joe, you'd think that the sinners don't know the architecture of hell. That is to say, they've never been taken on a guided tour of hell, and yet they do seem to know it. Um, Chaco knows. Chaco knows that uh, some of it Dante asks about these other dudes, right? And Chaco tells him, "I have an idea. How about I actually advance the slide? How about that? Let's actually look at Chaco a little bit." Again, I'm I'm not talking about all the political stuff, but. But I am interested especially in Dante's reactions to Chuck. With this, his words, inciting tears, were done. And I, to him, I would learn more from you. I ask you for a gift of further speech. Uh, I have no idea how to pronounce that name. I have No clue. No clue. That utterly defeats my ability to pronounce Italian words. Farinata, men so worthy... Arigo Mosca, Jacopo, Rust- Rusticucci. I can just get that one. And all the rest whose minds bent toward the good, do tell me where they are and let me meet them. For my great longing drives me on to learn if heaven sweetens or hell poisons them. And he, they are among the blackest souls. A different sin has dragged them to the bottom. If you descend so low, there you can see them. But when you have returned to the sweet world, I pray, recall me to men's memory. I say no more to you. Answer, no more. Okay, so, first of all, there is the request by Chaco. Well, last of all in the passage, but first thing I want to talk about is the request by Chaco, right? He wants to be recalled to men's memory? Well, all he asks of Dante, when you go back to the world, help men to remember me. Right? Now, this is a distinctly (laughs) double-edged sword in this case, right? On the one hand, Chaco, I've got good news and bad news, right? On the one hand, uh, everyone will always remember you, right? No question. Millions of people will read about you. Um. Uh, but on the other hand, right, everybody is going to associate associate you with gluttony and be invited to imagine you face down in the horribly reeking muck uh, for all eternity. Um, so. OK, can do. Um, notice, though, that Dante weeps for him. I believe that's what inciting tears, I believe it's his tears that are being incited by Chaco's words. Um, uh, and he, Dante, is, um, well, hungry for more information, right? I ask I ask you for a gift of further speech he wants to know where these five guys are you know political figures uh from Florence tell me where they are and let me meet them for my great longing drives me on to learn if heaven sweetens or hell poisons them um on the one hand, that curiosity um that that curiosity is not going to be um denied right I mean he's gonna see these guys at least some of them I'm not sure that hundred percent of them are gonna come up um but uh, I know Farinata will uh but um uh but anyway he's you know and, and Chaco says if you descend so low there, you can see them. Right. So his curiosity is going to be satisfied. It's not that he's simply denied this request. Right. Um, but, um, but Chaco won't tell him. And I agree, David, it does seem to me too remarkable that Dante is asking Chaco. Surely Virgil would know where they could be found. Yeah. He doesn't ask Virgil. He doesn't ask his guide. Um, the tears, and his going to because David, I think you're exactly right. His going to the the damned soul Chaco um, for guidance, essentially, instead of the Sea of All Wisdom, who is the, as he will be called in a couple of cantos, um, uh, who is right there beside him. Right, that's a bad look. I think it's a bad look um is Dante connecting himself with Chaco in some way well he does sympathize with him right um he is connected with um he does connect himself in a sense with chaco through his own through his own his own pity his own tears uh, on his behalf um as well as his implicit positive response to chaco's request he will in fact heed his request and recall him to men's memory he's gonna include it here it is he's included in the poem right um uh so yeah yeah Um. not that makes um Notice Dante has not really distanced himself from almost any of the sins that we have encountered so far. Um the swooning seems to be the biggest uh, giveaway, right? Um but um but here I think there's I think there's some some link there as well. Let's keep going. Cause after as they continue to walk through this circle. Dante has uh, some larger Boethian questions to ask. So did we pass across that squalid mixture of shadows and of rain, and our steps slowed down, talking a while about the life to come, at which I said, And after the great sentence, O master, will these torments grow, or else be less, or will they be just as intense? And he to me, Remember now your science, which says that when a thing has more perfection... So much the greater is its pain or pleasure, though these accursed sinners never shall attain the true perfection if they can expect to be more perfect then than now um the sentence the great sentence um uh do we know what he's talking about he's talking about um sorry is a, a a bible thing there's gonna be change in hell, right. They're not going to achieve salvation. Um, they, they're not going to repent. But there is going to be a very significant change, uh, a change of their state at the time in the future. And yes, the change of their state is going to be the last judgment. And what happens on Judgment Day? What's going to be different around in hell on Judgment Day? Yes, Carolyn, exactly. The resurrection of the body. People are going to get their bodies back. People are going to get their bodies back. Um, And that is true of the damned as well as of the saved. Um, Rather more attention tends to get paid uh, to the resurrection of the body in the blessed saints. Um, But the damned also are resurrected in the body. Uh, So it's going to. So he's wondering when they get their bodies back. What's going to happen? Is that going to make it worse or better? Will these torments grow or else be less or will they be just as intense? Is it is it going to be, you know, it's pretty much much of a muchness, whether you've got a body or not. And Virgil says, when a thing has more perfection, so much the greater is its pain or pleasure. And then Virgil kind of plays on the word perfection. Right. It's um, on the one hand, perfection means becoming perfect. Right. Being sanctified, being made whole uh, and complete uh, in the sense of salvation. Right. Um, But there's also another sense of perfection, a sort of a lower sense of perfection in which like that which you are doing can achieve perfection, completeness. Wholeness. Not that you are going to be made whole, not that you are going to be uh, made perfect, but that um, the so uh, the true sinners will the cursed sinners will never attain the true perfection. Yet they can expect to be more perfect than than now. Um, They will be more complete. So, what's the answer to his question? Will these torments grow, or else be less? Or will they be just as intense? What's the answer? Can you parse Virgil's answer there? Worse. Much worse. Exactly. Much worse. Yes. Um, Their suffering will become more perfect, David. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, They are suffering now, but their sufferings are still imperfect because they are incomplete. Their sufferings are incomplete because they have not. They don't have their bodies yet. Um, When things are brought to the fullness, then their suffering itself will be perfected. So yeah, yeah, that's that's the answer uh, to the question. Um, We took the circling way traced by that road. We said much more than I can here recount. We reached the point that marks the downward slope. Here we found Plutus, the great enemy. First of all, another classic Dantean transition, right? <clears throat> um, Dante loves these little mini cliffhangers. Uh, the cantos in the in Inferno tend to end like classic Doctor Who episodes. <laughs> right? Like always ending on some cliffhanger, which gets resolved in like the first, uh, you know, 30 seconds of uh, the next episode. Uh, right. It's exactly what um, uh, the Inferno cantos are always reminding me of. Um, uh, but um, uh, and, and yeah, you're right, uh, Stephen, that it is rather fitting since hell seems to have rather a lot of cliffs uh yeah <clears throat> yes it is on the edges of cliffs that uh, often these uh, uh these things happen um um <laughs> no arthur i'm not suggesting a parallel between virgil and any one of the doctor's particular companions um uh though I'm not suggesting, Arthur, that that wouldn't be a very interesting kind of, uh, uh, study to do, uh, compare and contrast Virgil as Dante's companion, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, Sarah Jane Smith or Lila or somebody else, but still, I think it's, um, uh, I'm not suggesting that, um, but our, our cliffhanger here, Plutus, the great enemy, Plutus, Plutus is weird. I don't get Plutus, um. I don't get Plutus. He is the. On the one hand, it's Pluto, sort of, like Pluto is the god of the underworld. Um. That's one. That's his Latin name, Hades in Greek, Pluto in Latin, um, and so that is kind of who this is. But again, I think what we're seeing, as we've seen already before, the pagans weren't just making stuff up, right? Virgil didn't make stuff up. Roman mythology doesn't just make stuff up out of nothing, right? But it does kind of misunderstand things. Doesn't have the whole picture. Didn't have the whole picture, right? Can't blame them. They didn't have revelation, but they figured out a whole heck of a lot. So it's true that there is a Pluto or a Plutus which I guess is the same person down in the underworld Um, but it's not exactly this is not like the white the husband of Persephone you know it's not it's not exactly the same he's not running the show for sure uh, down here Um, uh, but um, yeah yeah um, but Plutus is also associated with wealth. And there do seem to be two different figures the god of wealth and the god of. And the, the god of wealth, Plutus, the god of wealth is um, the one that is uh, where the word plutocrat comes from, right? The kind of uh, uh, vaguely, well, not very vaguely, actually, insulting word to call like a. You know, a rich person like a, you know, a Vanderbilt era, you know, uh, uh, you know, millionaire. Um, But uh, anyway, but I agree, David, calling Plutus a god of wealth, the great enemy. um, He's the great enemy because he's like sort of the god of the underworld or a major God of the underworld or someone who has been taken to be the great God of the underworld. And I agree associating that with wealth, uh, which is the root of all evil, right? According to one understanding of that uh, uh, verse in the book of James Um, uh, and the whole camel through the eye of the needle business, David, as you say, exactly Um, uh, that, uh, that stuff. Um. It does seem a kind it's it's not a bizarre juxtaposition, right? Um, it's a little bit odd. Um, I, I think what I find most odd about it is that he, Dante, takes this quite major figure. I mean, like, if you told me in advance, like, we're gonna meet Pluto, the god of the underworld, I'd be like, dude, I, I can't wait to see like Pluto on his throne. Are we gonna get Persephone too? Like, what's gonna f-? no. It's not like that at all, right? Uh, he's in like a dog. Well, a wolf, right? Um, pape Satan, pape Satanalepe. So Plutus, with his grating voice, began. The gentle sage, aware of everything, said reassuringly, don't let your fear defeat you. For whatever power he has, he cannot stop our climbing down this crag. Then he turned back to Plutus's swollen face and said to him, Be quiet, cursed wolf. Let your vindictiveness feed on yourself. His is no random journey to the deep. It has been willed on high where Michael took revenge upon the arrogant rebellion. So Virgil we'll puts Plutus in his place. Um The bizarre Um uh, the bizarre satanic invocation in the first line which by the way nobody really understands exactly what that means it's why he didn't translate it um, because it's it seems and yeah I too have a hard time overlooking Arthur the apparent connection between um, Satan and the Pope Pope it doesn't mean it doesn't just mean Pope um, but I mean it's kind of close. Uh so yeah. Um Carolyn, yet we should be remembering the wolf from Canto one, right? There seems to be a connection there. Um as notes will sometimes tell you, wolves, um I get very famously associated in medieval moral allegories uh the wolf is most commonly associated with avarice which seems fitting right as we seem to be entering into um a circle of avarice here uh uh as we as we you know, with plutus right you know we got plutus uh who's like a wolf um and but he's just he's just powerless right he's uh Scary, um, you know, with just even going back to the previous, uh, you know, here we found Plutus, the great enemy, which sounds like the lead into a boss fight, right? But and then it starts off kind of scary, right? With this like eerie sounding satanic invitation or invocation, rather, um, uh, which again, even in Italian, doesn't really make perfect sense, um, and then Uh, And, you know, he begins in his grating voice and then he's just, you know, Virgil just comes in and says, hey, pipe down. Well, he doesn't even talk to him first. First, he talks to Dante. Right. Don't let your fear. Like, you know, in the background while he's like yelling scary things in his grating voice, you know, Virgil in an aside, is like, don't let your fear defeat you, right? Let's pay no attention uh, to the cursed wolf howling over there. Um, he is all bark and no uh, 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 bite, uh, Valamoinen. and I agree with you. Um, yeah, so, but now, Jameson, I, I, I do also agree uh, that um, the god of wealth, And, uh, a a word which is, and Papa, yeah, Father, yes. Which, of course, also is where the word Pope comes from. So, I mean, that's, 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 yes. Um, the juxtaposition of Pope, Satan, and wealth all in the same place. Coincidence? No, no, I don't think it's coincidence. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, um, Sorry, Jocelyn. Yeah, sorry. I, I indulged in a uh, video game metaphor. Uh, boss fight. Just meaning, like, uh, it sounds like it's setting up for this massive confrontation with, like, an incredibly intimidating... Like, this, you know, a big, uh, a big important confrontation is going to happen, and it just gets kind of snuffed out. Virgil just sort of shouts him down, right? Be quiet, cursed wolf. Let your vindictiveness feed on yourself. Uh, even, like, turning his back on him while, you know, Plutus is in full cry... Being like, no, don't don't worry about that guy, right? So it turns out it's not a confrontation at all. He's just uh, he's just landscape decoration, right? I mean, as far as they're concerned, um, his rebuke, Vir- Virgil's rebuke to Plutus. Um, his is no random journey to the deep; it has been willed on high, where Michael took revenge upon the arrogant rebellion, is literally putting Plutus in his place. Where is his place? Oh yeah, hell. Why? Why is he in hell? Oh yeah, because he got his butt kicked by Michael. Michael, very important. Right, we've got to know who Michael is. What Michael are we talking about here? This is the Michael, right? Um, the archangel. Michael. Gabriel is the archangel who gets all the fame, right? Um, I, everybody talk everybody thinks about Gabriel because he comes up a lot and he plays a part in the Christmas story. So he's particularly famous. He's the one who appears to the Virgin Mary, of course. Um, but, um, uh, but Gabriel, of course, is not the only archangel. Um, nor is he the greatest of the archangels. the greatest most important archangel is michael he is the he is the captain of the heavenly hosts. Uh, he is the leader of the armies of heaven, and so he um, is the one who uh, took revenge upon the arrogant rebellion. Um, he is the one who is leading the charge when uh the uh, rebel angels are cast out of heaven and down into hell. So he is reminding Plutus, the demon, who is another demon, right? Reminding Plutus, the demon of when he got put into his place and reminding and pointing out our authority comes from that same place, that same authority that cast you out uh, and threw you down here Um Yes, exactly. For Tolkien fans, he is the he is the Aonwe of the Heavenly Host. Yes, um, yes. Michael is to, uh... okay. I'm not going to do the analogy. <laughs> Never mind. But yes, he is he is uh, the greatest in arms. That kind of thing. Exactly. Um, yes. And Jameson, also the defender of Israel. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, Okay. The other archangels? There are other archangels. That's two. Gabriel and Michael. Who are the other two? Four archangels. Yes. Uriel. Uriel and Raphael. That's right. Uriel and Raphael. That's it. That's it. They get even less uh, in the way of scriptural headlines. Uh, But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. We won't talk about them because they don't come up yet. Let's keep going. So, avarice. Plutus. Greed. Greed. Okay, hang on. Pause a second. This is where this we've come now to the point where good catholics say wait a second. We did we did lust. We did gluttony. Where's sloth? Where's sloth? We're going straight to avarice? We're skipping sloth? I mean, okay. It's like one of the lamer of the seven deadly sins, but still it's one of the seven deadlies, right This is when the the first time when it be starts to become clear we're not just we're not just doing the seven deadlies. um it's not organized that way um because we've skipped sloth entirely uh so. Yeah, it doesn't work like we might assume that it works. Um, <laughs> Carolyn says, skipping sloth is good news for me. I, I hear you, Carolyn. I hear you on that. Um, um, but let's read what happens down here in the fourth circle. Thus we made our way down to the fourth ditch to take in more of that despondent shore where all the universe's ill is stored. Justice of God, who has amassed as many strange tortures and travails as I have seen? Why do we let our guilt consume us so? Even as waves that break above Charybdis, each shattering the other when they meet, so must the spirits here dance their round dance. Here, more than elsewhere, I saw multitudes to every side of me, Their howls were loud. While, wheeling weights, they used their chests to push. They struck against each other. At that point, each turned around, and wheeling back those weights, cried out, Why do you hoard? Why do you squander? Okay, we'll come back to the hoarding and squandering. First, let's understand uh, the... uh, Let's try to understand literally what he's describing, and then let's think about how he's describing it. The uh the, the the epic simile that he's using to describe it. First of all, population is way up, right? There are more spirits here than he's seen anywhere else, right? So this is a super popular sin, clearly, right? Um, more folks here than there are in the lustful or in uh, uh gluttony. Um and it's a circle, right? It's a circle, and you've got people pushing rocks. Right? There are weights. It doesn't say rocks. Does he say rocks? He says weights. Okay, weights. He's they're pushing weights. Um, they're rolling them from with their chests, so which gives us a an idea of how large the weights are, right? So they're using their chests to push. So, I'm using my hands in my gesturing, which they shouldn't be. Like, right? they're using their chests. So, I've got their chests and presumably their faces pressed up against the rocks, which I'm assuming they're rocks, though it says weights. Um, and they're go- but they're, so they're going around in circles, but they're not just going around in circles like the lustful, right? Um, first of all, the, rustful are buffeted around- the lustful are buffeted around by the wind. These guys are moving much more laboriously, right? And they go around, but they're going around in contradictory ways. So you've got two groups of them, and they they go around in circles and then they collide. right? They crash into each other. And then when they crash into each other, they all go get on the other side of their rocks, and they go back the other way until they get to the other side of the circle, and then they crash again, and then they come back around and they push around the other side and they crash again. That seems to be what he's describing, as far as I'm understanding, that's what he is describing here. Um, <clears throat> oh, that's interesting, Stephen. Uh, Stephen says, weights also puts me in mind <clears throat> of how metal money was measured. Uh, yes, yes. Weights like uh, in a merchant scale. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. Interesting. That is interesting. Um, okay. Uh, so you've got two different populations and the thing that we can see with these two populations, the number one thing that we see is they're, they're, they're all, they're all in the same boat, right? They're all in the same circle. They're all doing the same thing. So there's a uniformity here. Everybody is in a sense receiving the same punishment, even though they're divided into two separate populations and they're always moving in opposite directions, Yet, they're both always moving in opposite directions, but neither of them is ever going anywhere, right? Because where are they going? In a circle, right? Well, not like they're not going around in a circle. They're only ever going half a circle and smashing into each other and smashing into each other and turning around and doing half a diameter of a circle. So it's even, like, less satisfying than just going around and around in circles, right? Um, uh, so, um Yeah yeah um okay so we see again contradictory streams right in fact in conflict with each other like they're always crashing into each other right and yet they are also in crashing into each other they serve as like part of each other's punishment in a sense um but um i uh, But they also are like they're they're part of each other's punishment, but they're they're all experiencing the same thing. There's like no real difference between them right um and now, what's the simile, even as waves that break above Charybdis each shattering the other when they meet, so must the spirits here dance their round dance, Charybdis huh? What's that? What's Charybdis and, and how why do waves break above Charybdis? The pal of Scylla, yeah, true enough. Yeah, the whirlpool from the Odyssey, right? So you've got you've got Scylla, who's the monster on the rock, who if you get too close to Scylla she'll like reach down and eat you and if you get too close to Charybdis, she'll suck your ship down, so you gotta you got to go very carefully between Scylla and Charybdis, uh, and you're likely to get screwed either way. But it's better to, as Odysseus learns, to go close to, to Scylla, because, you know, you'll lose like half a dozen sailors, but you'll still make it, whereas if you go too close to Charybdis, your whole ship will be destroyed. So, you know. Um, the literal metaphor. If he were making a, an an epic simile here, right? The simile would be uh, even as waves when they meet shatter, right? So it's like two waves, like two waves crashing. And you know, and you know, I th- the place where I feel like I've seen this myself in my own experience, most with two waves. I mean, uh, is like when you get um, uh, waves breaking into um, like uh, you know, sort of tight tide pool areas or like among rocks right where you know the waves will come in and the and the, two, the the wave will get kind of funneled in by the rocks and then the waves will kind of smack against each other and send water spewing up really high into the air that seems to be what he's describing here um waves breaking but breaking against each other and shattering when they meet that's so he's describing a really violent collision which is a little weird to me because you'd think if they're all using their weights to push these their chests to push these massive weights. I mean, I guess maybe you could build up a little bit of momentum, but it kind of seems like you'd all be trundling around like trundle, 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 thud. Right. And then trundle, 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 thud on the other side. But that's not what he describes at all. Right. You know, he describes instead like turning, 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 crash and turning, 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 crash. I guess they get moving right with their weights. Um, Okay, so. They're not just plotting, right? They're not they're not. It's kind of like Sisyphus. Right. It's very reminiscent of Sisyphus. Uh, Sisyphus, who you may remember, uh, is punished in the underworld in in classical mythology by pushing the boulder up the hill. And every time it gets almost to the top of the hill, he loses his grip on it and it rolls back down the hill and then he's got to start again. Right. So it's like that both in the rolling large rock uh, uh, phenomenon, and also in the sense of futility, right? Because they they never get anywhere. They roll their rocks and then they smash and then they turn around and do it again. Um, so, um, uh, okay, so I think that the metaphor, sorry, the simile uh, with the waves definitely, it suggests the violence of collision. Um and a, again, even like the splattering right effect, it's 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 this is a violent collision, so they've got to they've got to they got to build up some speed. It's not like, in this way, it is unlike Sisyphus. I think not, Yeah, Sisyphus. That's right. Um, um, it's unlike Sisyphus, who is like laboriously pushing the rock up the hill, you know, inch by inch. Um, these folks get moving, right? These folks get moving un- temporarily. And then they crash. Okay. Um, And. um, Yeah. Okay. So. But now why Charybdis? Why Charybdis specifically? What is Charybdis? Danger to ships. Right? Charybdis is. The gaping maw right charybdis is like the bottomless so charybdis is like the sarlacc in star wars right i mean charybdis is, she's underwater right um but but charybdis is this is this ever hungry never full maw that is always drinking that is always consuming anything that comes near it there's a, um there's a um uh, uh an element of, you know, voracious and unslacking appetite about Charybdis. And I have to think that that's, there's a reason he talked about not just waves crashing against each other, but waves that break above Charybdis, shattering the other when they meet. Um, Yeah, Jameson, exactly. If, uh, if, if uh, Michael is the Aeon way of, uh, uh, of, you know, the Christian afterlife, um, uh Charybdis is the Ungoliant, yeah, I agree. Um, okay, so that's interesting and I think relevant, right uh, to the sin here. Now, now back to what they shout as they turn around, so when they meet each other, they crash against each other, and then there's a scramble. Right. Well, they all because presumably they fall down and stuff. It's a violent collision. Right. So, boom. And presumably, like people are crashing into them from behind. I mean, it's got to be a fearful, fearsome tangle. Uh, but they've got to get up and they've got to get back around to the other side of their rocks and start pushing their rocks in the other direction. Um, uh, and as they do that, as they're mingling there at the apex or a What's the plural of apex? Apices? I don't think I've ever used the plural of the word apex. How exciting! Apices, yeah. Excellent. At the apices of their of their uh, uh, of their turns here, um, they yell at each other. Why do you hoard? Why do you squander? There we go. Um, so who are these people? What are their sins? What are their sins? Yes. The misers and the prodigal. That's who these people are. Those who hoard are misers who hoard money and won't spend it. Uh, The prodigal are those who squander their money. Um, The parable of the prodigal son has had a very... The popularity of the parable of the prodigal son has had a rather perverse effect on the reception history of the word prodigal. Um, Because, of course, everybody focuses on the fact that The story of the prodigal son is the story about the son who left his father's house and was really bad and then committed all these sins and then came back, repented and came back. Right. So um, I remember very clearly as a kid, I associated the word prodigal. I, I thought prodigal meant first. I thought that prodigal meant like the prodigal son meant the son who came back home again. Like that, that's what it meant to be prodigal was to, you know, and, and that's not only what I gleaned from the story, not knowing that word in any other context than that story, um, but also the way in which it got, I, I heard it applied, not only in uh, uh, in conversation at times, uh, but, you know, at least... In my family's crowd, um, but also in literature as well, um, people talk about ah, like, oh, the prodigal son returns, right? It's like okay, so see, it's about like that's what it means. Um, um, and Stephen, yeah, I think I was also confused by that too. That it it, it is similar to the word prodigy which is a good thing and also often used of children as well <laughs> right so I got a little confused by that too I think I, I, I do think that that influenced me as well um But of course, when he is called the prodigal son, it has nothing to do with his repentance or his returning to his father. The prodigality of the prodigal son means his spending his father. He takes his father's inheritance, right? He goes to his dad in the parable in the New Testament, goes to his dad and says, give me my share of the inheritance. Now, I don't want to wait for you to die, right? Give me the inheritance that I would get that I would normally get when you die. Give it to me now. Cause I want to spend it while I'm still young. And then he goes off and he, um, uh, he, uh, spends all of his money on riotous living, as it says in the King James, which I always loved that phrase, riotous living. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, he, he blows. That's what makes him prodigal, right? That is where, th- where his prodigality lies. It is his blowing of the money. Uh, that's why he is identified uh, as the prodigal son. Again, I was so confused about that for so many years. The miserly and the prodigal. Um, Dante first links these two things, which seem to be completely opposites of each other. Somebody who blows all their money and spends all the money, and someone who hoards all of their money. Um, Both of them They seem to be completely opposite conditions. He links them. Now, the opposite orientation uh, of them, right? Um, The opposite orientation of them is noted, right? They are wheeling in different directions, right, on the circle. Um, But at the end of the day, they're doing exactly the same thing. Right. Um, The kind of larger moral point that Dante makes here is that miser, prodigal, you know, whether you're a hoarder or a spendthrift. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Right. They are accusing each other. They still think they're superior. Right. Um, The misers still can't understand those prodigal folks who spend all their money. Right. Wasteful. Ridiculous. The prodigal can't understand the misers, right? Why they hoard all their money. And so they're rebuking each other. But in the end, they're both experiencing almost exactly the same thing. They are just two waves crashing together over the gaping, ever-hungry maw of Charybdis, right? The desire for money is an unquenchable desire, right? A spendthrift can never have enough money to spend, right? There is no money that a prodigal cannot blow. Um, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. There is no money that will satisfy a miser, right? The your 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 hoard can never be large, and you can never be completely sure, right? You still um, might. Um, you still you still might need some more. Um, the sin. Notice the sin hasn't been said here either. I still think that's true. He calls him a cursed wolf. So I'm just going back and looking at, yeah, no. He's not said the word. The word being avarice, right? The plain label of the sin that is involved here, right? Um, greed. Greed. Fixation on money. Veronica, exactly the phrase that you used there. Uh, and Veronica, as you're suggesting, the point, of course, the larger moral point that Dante makes here is that both of them, both the misers and the prodigal, um, are equally fixated on money. They are both guilty of greed. Um, they're both guilty of greed. They are both guilty of focusing on money and even on, in a sense, the things of the world, even though misers might practice self-denial, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, we do get a pretty strong clue in uh, Plutus being, in Plutus, right, and his association uh, with the god of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're we're given a fairly clear direction there. Um, But he's still, he's not, I don't think he's used the word avarice uh, here. I'm not sure he does use the word avarice. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to go back to the beginning. One of you was asking about this a little while later earlier and i didn't answer it but let's uh let's come back to it thus we made our way down to the fourth ditch to take in more of that despondent shore where all the universe's is ill is stored meaning hell right so i mean that sentence could be paraphrased thus we made our way down to the fourth level of hell in order to see to continue our tour of hell right to see more of hell which, you know, we're meant to see. But, but he characterized it as where all of this universe's is ill is stored. Justice of God. Who has amassed as many strange tortures and travails as I have seen? Why do we let our guilt consume us so? Okay. He speaks in the first person. Not just, like, describing his actions... Right. This is an aside, which he hasn't done too much of. Right. He, I mean, he'll have like a side conversation with Virgil or something. But this kind of a pure aside. And he's here talking to God. Right. Um, he's talking to God. Justice of God. He's invoking the justice of God. Why do we let our guilt consume us so? Who has amassed as many strange tortures and travails as I have seen? Um, why do we let our guilt consume us so? That seems like a fairly clear kind of connection to what we've been seeing before, right? <clears throat> he is characterizing... What happens to the shades in hell as them being consumed by their own guilt and again like the the in the ways that we've been talking about right what you chose uh what you chose in life you get in hell right um, <clears throat> you are consumed not by an external thing right exactly um you're not just sort of subjected to an external torture, you are consumed by your own guilt by your own choices now I can't help but think um, I can't help but think that his word choice though in this little invocation is a little conspicuous who has amassed as many strange tortures and travails as I have seen amassed like gathered together in like a horde. I mean, when you're about to talk about misers and prodigal, when you're entering into the circle of avarice, to talk about amassing things is a rather conspicuous uh, piece of word choice there. Who has amassed as many strange tortures and travails as I have seen. He has accumulated a great wealth of tortures and travails. Right. He has seen much. What's he doing? Well, what do you do to not end up in this circle? If this is what avarice looks like, what does non-avarice, what does virtue, the virtue look like? Yeah, yeah. Using your money properly again—it's Aristotelian, right? The Aristotelian. When I—I—I I, I, I should have said more about this before when I talked about Aristotelian uh, uh, models versus like the Catholic Patristic models. Um, the primary premise of Aristotle's ethics is the golden mean, right? Aristotle teaches that extremes of anything are bad. And the golden mean is where virtue lies. And we see that illustrated very clearly here. Why do you hoard? Why do you squander? Right? So the misers and the prodigal are two, the two extremes on the axis of relationship with money. Right? So a proper relationship with money, a virtuous relationship with money, is one who um, is thrifty charitable spending in in moderation right but it's um uh um yeah uh jameson and i think james there was somebody else who was remembering this earlier too um jameson is remembering jacob marley uh from uh uh from christmas carol Uh, who says, uh, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I guarded it on my own of... uh, I guarded it... uh, I guarded it on of my own free will and by my own free will I wore it. Yes. Uh, Do I think that he's influenced by the Dantean conception? I sure do. Yeah, I sure do. Um, But, um... Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, good. Okay, so, um... Now, so by the way, many through the Middle Ages said that although Aristotle's very wise, of course, and he's not wrong about, the like, there are many examples of where, you like, the mean between two extremes is certainly the course of wisdom, and that is where virtue lies. Like, he's not totally wrong, but he's also not totally right either. There are some things which are just binary, right? Like, lust, for instance— there's not an appropriate amount of lust. Like, lust is just wrong. You know, illicit sexual desire is not good, even if you only have, like, some of it. Right? And to be... to keep yourself 100% pure of illicit sexual desire is not an extreme on the bad end. That's good. Right? So uh, that's the, uh, the... basically, that's the Augustinian model of virtue, which says... You've got vice and virtue, which are basically opposites of each other. And it's not a choice of steering between two extremes. It's a choice of choosing the correct extreme uh, and not letting yourself even wander down the path. Um, so you don't want to find the golden mean. Um, you don't want to find the golden mean between, um, uh, you know, like uh, pride and humility, right? You know, it's not like, complete humility is bad uh, because it's an extreme, and like, modest pride is the correct move. Like, Augustine would say, heck no, right? So that's the the Augustinian binary model, and the Aristotelian model is the mean between extremes. Um, um, anyway, anyway. Um, yeah. Now, Bruce, you're certainly right that... Um, like having, there is a kind of a mean in sexual virtue, right? That is, like uh, having sex within your marriage is like perfectly okay, right? Uh, but, but it still does not really follow an Augustine or an Aristotelian model. Uh, that is the, the the Christian teaching about sexual virtue, because chastity, uh, virginity, um, uh, is is an extreme. Right, but it's a good extreme. It's it's uh, it is the highest extreme. Um, uh, marriage is not wrong, but it's not great either. Virginity's better. Everybody knows that. We are big fans of virginity in the Middle Ages. Okay, I mean, big big fans. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, later. Um, exactly, Jameson. It's the second best. It's the second best thing. If you can't be pure, um, if, if, if you can't hack celibacy, then there's a, there's an alternative for you, which is an acceptable alternative, but it is still an inferior spiritual state to virginity. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. Everybody knows that. By the way, when I say everybody knows that, I'm referring to the way that medieval people think, right? I'm, I am I, I use that phrase not because I'm actually trying to assert that uh, upon all of you, the contemporary audience. I'm trying to orient you to medieval thinking, right? So when I say everybody knows that, just take my word for it, okay? It means this is a thing which is almost universally accepted in the medieval world where this story is, uh, is happening. So I should probably explain explicitly what I mean when I say things like that. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, okay. All right. So, um, where was like, Oh yeah. Amassing tortures. That's right. Um, So what is Dante going to do? In writing his poem, he is finding the mean. He has amassed these experiences, this vision, right? The strange tortures and travails that he has seen. Um, And he is... So again, the, 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 the word amassing connects him to the avaricious, which are surrounding him here, um, specifically the, avar- uh, the, the, the miserly and the prodigal. Um, he is going to do neither one of those things. If he were a miser of these, these experiences, these observations he has amassed, if he were miserly, he would not write them, right? If he were prodigal, he would write indiscriminately. He's, gonna, he's doing neither one, right? So Dante is going to maintain the mean. Um, he is not going to be connected with either one of these crowds. He's not going to be pushing a rock. This seems to be one of the, um, one of the sins which he seems least drawn to, um, least connected with himself. And I, who felt my heart almost pierced through, requested, Master, show me now what shades are these, and tell me if they all were clerics? Those tonsured ones, who circle on our left. I think those are the misers. And he to me... All these, to left and right, were so squint-eyed of mind in the first life. No spending that they did was done with measure. Their voices bark this out with clarity when they have reached the two points of the circle where their opposing guilts divide their ranks. These to the left, their heads bereft of hair, were clergymen and popes and cardinals within whom avarice works its excess. There we go. We finally get the word. Avarice only line forty eight look at we we got it sooner than we got it with gluttony um, though here we had gotten even clearer indications right it was not quite so much of a guessing game the why do you hoard why do you squander was a pretty was a pretty clear indicator there um, okay so uh yeah, I think the so they've uh, almost all have tonsures right uh, tonsures um, uh, the, the bald the baldnesses so it like, uh, 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 it was a it was a thing you're supposed to shave your head like the crown of your head that's what a tonsure is um, and that's what he is perceiving um, he's, he's, he's seeing that they all have tonsures on their heads um, so they're all they're all priests. Brian says, was, was this an incendiary statement or did everybody know that some of the clergy were greedy? Um, see, OK, good. You guys are asking the questions that just exactly the question I was going to get to. I have never read Dante or Chaucer for that matter, but especially Dante with a modern audience that does not immediately ask the question, isn't Dante going to get in trouble for saying this? Answer well <laughs> that ship is sailed right it's, you know worrying about getting in trouble with the pope if you're dante would be like you know closing the barn door after the horses left the stable already right he's already in trouble with the church so you know um he's, he's already been he's already been been banished um uh so uh he's got little reason to hold back uh in his criticism of the pope um uh so um so there's a certain freedom that dante has but i would say in general um <laughs> right as Michelle says, "In for a penny, in for a pound." That's a little bit. That's a little bit more like it. Uh, that's actually a really good characterization, I think, of uh, uh, Dante's anti-clerical statements uh, in, uh, in 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 the Comedy. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, but I would also add the modern world has a, a sweetly naive view of the power and authority of the medieval church. Um, I think that medieval popes, there are many medieval popes who would get a little misty-eyed if they were to hear modern people talking about how powerful they assumed the medieval church was. <clears throat> um, they wish they were that <laughs> powerful. Uh, the, the modern idea that, like, if you put a foot out of line, the church is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks and their authority is unchallengeable. Um, it wasn't. That wasn't the way of it. I mean, that concept was out there. Right? There were definitely medieval popes who wanted that, uh, who strove for that kind of thing. Um, very few popes or, you know, priests on the local level or bishops. Or, nobody actually wielded that kind of authority. Um, medieval people were fairly unruly as well, whether it's kings to the pope I mean, you don't even have to go to Henry VIII, right? Henry VIII is a slight extreme when it comes to unruliness, but um, uh, but even like um, like a lot of people don't know this: William the Conqueror. Right, William the Conqueror conquers England, and he's like, "Okay, I'm king of England now," and the Pope is like, "Great, I'm gonna, I'm gonna appoint some like," and and William says, "Oh, so by the way, I'm ruling England, I'm gonna appoint all the bishops," and the Pope is like, "Ah, uh, no, you will not. Rome will appoint the bishops," and Henry's like, mm, "No, no, you won't, actually." <laughs> and, I mean, you know, anyway, it's just like that's that happened all the time, and 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 the Pope is and 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 William is like, "And what are you gonna do?" you know, Sir Pope, right? Like down there in Rome, right? I'm waiting over here in England. My, when you get here, by the time you get here, or send anybody here, you know, I'll have already appointed all the bishops already, whatever. Um, I mean, it's just, it's not... See, exactly, Ben says, tell that to Galileo. Oh my goodness, don't get me started on Galileo. Um, uh, yeah, the, the myth of Galileo... And I, please understand, I'm using the word myth uh I'm not using the word myth in the modern sense. Uh, Modern people use the word myth to mean um, a thing that is not true but people think it is, right? And that's not how I use the word myth at all. I'm using the word myth deeply influenced by uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, uh, who use myth as a powerful story uh, which conveys a powerful truth independent of whether or not it's true. Um, uh, the myth of Gal- the, the story of Galileo and the conflict between Galileo and the church is an incredibly powerful myth in the modern world, incredibly powerful myth in the modern world. It is uh, a deeply moving story, which has uh, but it's um, there's way more to the story than the modern myth. Uh, version of the story, um, and yeah, did they like did, you know did individual popes and bishops and stuff in fact wield power over other people? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm not saying they were utterly powerless, and it's all a lie. All I'm saying is, lots of people expressed criticism not only not necessarily of the, like the church in general, like even Dante's not expressing it of the church in general, just of many of these clergymen, popes, and cardinals, right? To say that, to say that there are many popes, cardinals, and clergymen who are corrupt, morally corrupt, in many places that wouldn't even count as a controversial statement. Everyone would be like, well, given, I mean, obviously, right? Uh, But what does that have to do with it? So, um, uh, anyway, I mean, uh, there's—it's just, like I say, it's not— I'm not saying that the medieval church had no authority or wielded no authority. I'm just saying it's not as simplistic as modern people talk about it or think about it. There's this modern idea that the medieval church was this absolute authority. It was not an absolute authority. Um, Again, I kind of wished it was in some ways, but it it, um, I mean, so many um, uh, so many So much of the story of medieval Christendom is all about the ebbs and flows of different power struggles there. And Dante's story, political story is very, very much at the heart of that. Um, again, I'm not doing a whole bunch with Dante's politics here, but, um, the, the, the critical thing was like, who should have political authority? Cause this is in Italy, right? And again, there's no such thing exactly as Italy, uh, in, uh, in Dante's time. We've got all the different, you know, the different separate city states, but, um, but anyway, I mean, there's Rome. They're like right near Rome. And so Rome is trying to assert political control, like temporal control. And that's the point. That That's the key word, right? Um, nobody was denying, well, most people weren't denying that the pope had spiritual authority. But it's like there's the spiritual authority and there's the temporal authority. Um, and the temporal, so like the pope shouldn't be owning land. They shouldn't be ruling. They shouldn't be acting like a king over people right they should be dealing with spiritual matters exclusively and Dante was a monarchist um Dante was uh, um, uh, supported the idea like that the, the, you know the the emperor should have like the 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 temporal rulers the secular rulers should have the secular political power, Rome, the Pope should not have secular political power. That was his. That was the thing that got him primarily in trouble. That's what got him exiled, Um, uh, because yeah, geographically close to Rome, um, that was uh, that was hard to maintain. Um, It was a little bit less controversial to talk like that, say, in northern France or in England, right, Um, or even in Germany, because again, you're not the 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 actual like domains around Rome were um, ruled uh, by the church. Anyway, it's it's complicated. Um, but again, you could crit- you could criticize. Um, you could. Cr- it's not going to get you excommunicated to say some of the sca- the cardinals are scandalously uh, corrupt. That's not going to get you excommunicated, right? Um, even if you said that to a bunch of cardinals, right? If you were to go up to a bunch of cardinals in Rome and say some cardinals are really corrupt, what are they going to say? The cardinals that you're talking to, what are they probably going to say, you think? They're going to be like, oh, no, it is not possible. There are no, they're going to be like, you are so right. Them over there. You're absolutely right. Those, like, the guys on the opposite side of, like, whatever the political division is, you know, currently within the... Yeah, exactly. As Stephen Cover says, they would say, yeah, we're trying to fix that. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. That's... Yeah. So, it's not even... It's not merely to say that um, uh, that that, you know, there are and have been sinful clergymen, popes, and cardinals who are probably in hell right now is not um, is not nearly quite so controversial as uh, as it sounds uh, from a modern perspective. Um, okay, all right. Um, this is a lot of fun, but it's getting late. I know I started late again tonight, so I wanted to uh, uh, go a little bit longer, but we'll come back to the avaricious. Things are going to start getting... Geographically complicated uh in the latter part of um uh of canto seven and then through canto eight um this is one of the places where you'll notice one of the things I've not done is give maps uh, lots of people have made maps of the underworld uh, Dante's descriptions almost invite maps and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but the narrative is a little bit less clean cut than a lot of the maps kind of make it appear right um, and um, I and, and I think that this is um, uh, what the, the the passages we're coming to the, the, the stretch we're coming to is um, some of those some of those uh, places where things are a little bit more uncertain uh, boundaries in that way um, okay all right, so thanks, everybody. Uh, I, we will be back next week. Um, I think we should be back th- through Wednesdays all the way down through uh, Christmas Eve. Chris, I think Christmas is a Thursday, as I recall, this year, which means that we'll be missing both t- two weeks in a row, um, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, but we'll be, uh, we'll be good until then. All right, so what to read? Um, we're definitely going to... I'm going to try to get through nine next time. That's my ambitious goal. I'm going to try to get through nine. Um, So we'll see. We'll see about that. We'll do the rest of seven, eight, and nine. Okay. Oh, Christmas is Friday this year. Right. I still think I'm not going to be able to do the 23rd. Um, Yeah. Okay. But anyway, yeah, we're still going to lose two weeks at the end there. Um, All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I will see you guys next week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org/fund.